Godfrey Cambridge is Gravedigger Jones. Raymond St. Jock is Coffinhead Johnson. Look out for a brother, man. What you gonna play now? Is the girl crazy? That's the piece. I sure am hungry. Baby, check, baby, one, baby, wait for it. Black is black. And you're black. He was as big as Muhammad Ali. Black is beautiful. Right on. Uh, black, y'all, and I'm black, y'all. And I'm blickety black, blacker than black, black. I'm blacker than black, yo. Because I'm black, black. Well, welcome to the latest episode of the JB's Low Tech Podcast. Well, this is a special edition, and you know that by the different opening music for the uh, show. But also, this is number 100, show 100, ladies and gentlemen. I actually made it. And we'll look back at the year and the years and also celebrate a little bit here on the JB's Low Tech Podcast. Someone to listen, a lawyer you know and trust. Hi, I'm Mike Bryant. Over the years at holiday time, Bradshaw and Bryant has been able to help thousands of Central Minnesotans arrive home safely from the bars. This year, we could very well be celebrating at home, but there's still lots of things that we can do to ensure that you stay safe on the roads, like slowing down, giving yourself enough time that you're not in a rush, no texting and driving, hands-free phone calls, and of course, no drinking and driving. Please be safe so that you get home to your loved ones. I'm Mike Bryant from Bradshaw and Bryant. This year, my biggest wish is that we all remain happy, healthy, and even a little more kind to one another. A lawyer who will fight with confidence and pride. A working harder, going farther with my Bryant on your side.
Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the JB's Low Tech Podcast. That was the Gap Band with the song Party Train, and I just wanted to welcome you on to this party, the celebration of show 100. It will be a best of, a best of the episodes that I produced and a celebration that I made it to number 100. Again, I want to thank my sponsor, Mike Bryant, for sponsoring me, but I also want to thank Mike Bryant for sponsoring the KQRS Morning Show all these years and Tom Bernard. And a salute to Tom as he wrapped up his time at KQRS. But something tells me that we haven't heard the last from my buddy, Tom Bernard. Well, let's see what I think of what would be a best of all the 100 shows here on the JB's Low Tech Podcast. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, very true. I was lucky enough to have that happen in my life. And we talked about Harry, and Harry Broadfoot was one of those people, and Dick Matson, plus my parents. So, and the high school football coaches I worked under all planted seeds that uh, grew and continue to grow to this day. So it must have been helpful when you were drafted in the NBA and it was time to make that next step to have somebody like Clem to uh, talk to before you went off for the NBA. Yeah, yeah that, was, that was interesting. Because I, plan, I didn't plan on playing in the NBA. I planned on staying in Minnesota and living a good life. That's what I planned on doing. That was my plan. You know, a lot of people, a lot of things are said, you know, but... That wasn't my plan. My plan was to do like, you know, to be like all the other guys, the former Gophers here, and be in the magazine for doing something positive as you show recruits. You know, that was big. Right. I wanted to be like Al Nunes. I did. Yeah, you, to this day, you will wear your gold uh, Letterman uh, sweater <laughs> here and yeah. there. Just, yeah. You know, wear it with pride. So, yeah. Uh, so you, you, who did you get drafted by in the NBA? The Miami Heat. I went from the refrigerator to the oven. <laughs> and who was the uh, coach at the time? Uh, Ron Rothstein. He had coached the Detroit Pistons. Matter of fact, he went back to Miami. He was there doing the championship. So he was there with the championships with the Pistons and then the championships with the Miami Heat. Excellent coach for NBA. I, I, I contribute a lot of my scoring in the NBA because I, I, I could score. To hit his direction my first year, he taught me how to break down offenses. He taught me how to see and view things on the floor so that I can score. And he, he taught me that in my first year. I mean, he taught me that really that summer. Because in my first NBA game, I had 25 points, you know? Yeah. Well, so that's great teaching. Yeah, I, I remember you went from somebody that Clem wanted to be a scorer and be a rebounder to somebody who was a scorer and a rebound. And I would assume that uh, Coach Rothstein uh, saw that and also uh, built upon that, too. Yeah. The NBA is a little different, you know, at least the teams that I played on, because in the NBA, you have 30 people that can rebound, 20 people that can play defense, 30 people that can pass. But one of the things that's really highly valued in the NBA more than anything is a score, you know, someone that could literally put the ball in the basket. And there's guys, I mean, there's nothing you can do about it. 
I mean, you really, in the NBA, really what you're trying to do is keep guys from getting 50 or 40 or 30. Right. That's what you're trying to do. You're not going to stop them. <laughs> That's not going to happen. Right. So you just don't want them to set records. <laughs> For those who may not recognize the voice, that was Willie Burton, great uh, all-Big Ten gopher, basketball player, and NBA star, somebody I chased for weeks to get on the JB's Low Tech Podcast and finally got him on. Well, we'll check and see who's next on this show as we continue to celebrate number 100 here on the JB's Low Tech Podcast. As most of you know, I love to talk about sports, but I also love young people. So I invited Ann Montgomery to be on the podcast to talk about effects of sports on youth in America today. And here's Ann Montgomery on the JB's Low Tech Podcast. To get even further kind of into this, when young people watch, you know, they may watch a game or they may watch a sports report or, or uh, you know, an in-depth documentary about an athlete or a game or something. Is uh Things being glorified too much, where that's all they see is the is the, is the stardom, or that's that's my only way of making it. Um, that's kind of two questions. I think that the the idea that they want to be stars, yes, they see all of that stuff and they go, "That's what I want. I want to be that thing. I want to be that famous person with the nice car, with the pretty women, with the you know, with all the money. That's what I want." But they don't see the other side of it, all the work it took to get there, you know? And, and I think it's important if you're doing videos about this kind of thing, is that you show that that's your entire life. There's a quote, and it's funny, it's not about sports, but a woman went up to a concert pianist and she said, I would give my life to play piano like you do. And he said, well, I already have. You know, obviously there was nothing else in his life. You don't have options. If you want to be that guy... That, that gets to the top, then that's all you can do. And I don't think kids understand. I sat down with kids in school, said, so where do you see yourself in 10 years? I'm going to be a quarterback in the NFL. Oh, great. Do you play for our team? No. You don't play for your high school team. How are you going to be a quarterback in the NFL? I can be whatever I want. I said, that's the biggest lie teachers have ever told you. You can't be anything. Right. You certainly can't be anything without work. You know, I, I point out, you you know, Shaquille O'Neal is never going to be a thoroughbred racehorse jockey. He's not. He'd kill the horse. Right. That's not possible. <laughs> right now, if you're blind, you're probably not going to be a fighter pilot. So that's a lie. You can't be anything, but you can be lots of things, but only if you work really hard. So I'm afraid so many kids think that they don't have to work hard to get these things. Right. Um, and then the other, the other problem is I want to be a quarterback in the NFL. Okay. What are you going to do after that? What do you mean? Well, what's the average NFL career, like 3.6 years now? Yes. So now you're 25 and your career's over. What are you going to do now? And nobody ever thinks that far. I'm like, you have to have something to do. That's why we have so many athletes who end up alcoholics and drug addicts, because they don't know what to do now. They got what they wanted. Money isn't enough. What do you do? And my kids are totally baffled. They, They don't even know how to answer the question. I said, let's make another plan. So after you're out of the NFL, you'll have more goals. Because not, not, not only that, but not all of them can go into broadcasting after their, after their career is over with, be it long or short. So, No, but there's so many options in the sports world 
um, where there are jobs. I mentioned right. earlier, you know, maybe you want to be in broadcasting, maybe you want to be a reporter, maybe you want to be uh, an agent, maybe you want to be a sports attorney, maybe you want to go into sports marketing. There's all kinds of other sports jobs, but, you know, they're also fixated on being the star hoisting the, the Super Bowl trophy that they can't see beyond that. And, and so I, I tried for 20 years, I tried. But it's funny, every year the same bunch of kids came in telling me they were going to be pro athletes. Made laugh like I didn't know what I was talking right. about. Well, that was Ann Montgomery, sportcaster and writer and author, and I appreciate her time. Two of my most listened to podcasts actually were family members, and we'll listen to a little bit of both of those as they had insights to give to not only the listeners, but to me myself here on the JB's Low Tech Podcast. Well, I, <clears throat> I kind of had to chuckle when you said you're getting old because I'm 30 years old. <laughs> Looking at your bio, I'm 30 years older than you, so what does that make me, ancient? Anyway, <laughs> anyway um, um, is this something that people can get rich from? Is it just something that is a staple income? Why is it that so many people seem to want to get into the business, including local and state governments who want to tax the hell out of it? Well, I think the, the basis of it is there's this movement happening. And, um, you know... I'm not going to say that I'm against uh, pharmaceuticals at all. I, I will say, though, that I am for a more natural homeopathic way of living and of um, problem solving within the body. So I have noticed that there is this movement of many people who are along this, thinking along the same vein. And cannabis really offers... Uh, offers us relief in that way. So there's that. I, you know, there's a lot of money to be made. I'm not going to lie. There's a lot of money to be made, whether it's quote-unquote white market or black market. There's a whole lot of money to be made out there because right. a lot of people use uh, the plant. But I honestly think it's, it's just a passion for most people to want to get into this business uh, like everyone that I work with right now, currently, every single person will, you know, work on the plants at work. And then they have their own girls at home also. So, I mean, <laughs> it's it, it must be coming from a passion standpoint. Because um, I, don't, I don't know the numbers, but I know it is a huge industry across the nation right now. And it's only, uh, the forecast is to only make more money. Um, so I, I can't say that that's not, you know, not a goal for people. But I think it starts with having a different route for taking care of your body and mind. Uh, you had mentioned about being an outdoor grower and an indoor grower. Is it harder on your body to be an outdoor grower? Uh, well, <laughs> I, don't, I wouldn't say for growing uh, marijuana but definitely for like landscaping, landscape design, it that is some tough work, um, some tough tough work to be doing uh, in hundred degree weather. Um, now, growing cannabis is not easy, but it's it's not as hard on the body, um, and it kind of just depends on what kind of climate you're in. Um, that will kind of uh, tell you what 
kind of hard work you're going to be doing to combat some of the things that might come up come about that you have to problem problem solve. You know, it's not it's not as easy as just throwing a plant in the ground and then watching it grow. You know, right. you really have to tend to tend to the plant. Um, so what are um, some of the benefits from cannabis? Oh, there's so many. There's so, so many. <laughs> Let it roll. So a lot of people that I know in my life specifically take cannabis for anxiety. Um, now, I'm not a doctor. Let me just preface that. I'm not a doctor. I'm not saying that any, anyone should do the take it for these reasons. You should go talk to a doctor about it first. But a lot of people that I know around me take it for anxiety. They take it for, uh, I take it for, for cramps and uh, my menstrual cycle. Um, some other people, there's benefits. Um, I've even read that there's benefits of, it's like a bronchial dilator. So <laughs> this might sound weird, but the more you smoke, the more you can inhale and, and the more oxygen you can intake, <laughs> uh, which kind of sounds like an oxymoron, but it's, it's, it's honestly not. It's, it's a proven thing. Um, I mean, there's just so many benefits. There's so many benefits. And hopefully with more and more states becoming legal and becoming at least med medical, we'll know more about what cannabis can afford all of us through um, testing and, and trials and with that opening up. Now, federally, you know, it's kind of strange to me, and hopefully this doesn't get us into trouble, but it's just, it's just a thought and idea. Um, anyone can go on to Google Documents right now and find that uh, the U.S. holds, the, the government holds the patent for medical marijuana. <laughs> Um, and it's, it's not something that everyone talks about and it's just kind of strange because it's, it's federally illegal, right? But right. why do they hold the patent on it? So there's more that our government is, it knows than they're letting out or letting on to. Um, but honestly, it can, it's, it's used for so much. It's just any, any ailment that you have that is like a chronic, especially pain related issue. It can be used for. Well, um, what ages have you found that get relief from cannabis? Um, well, <laughs> that's kind of a slippery slope in it. Um, I think that all ages could benefit under strict uh, oversight with a doctor. I, I really do believe that because, like I said, it's used for so much. It's, it's used for people who have chronic seizures, um, and, and that includes children. Um, now, children aren't, you know, rolling in doobie and lighting up, you know, to, right. to, to, to combat this. But um, they definitely have made edibles and things of that nature for children who really, really need it. And the, the pharmaceutical medication is just not working as well. Um, so, but, you know, I've, I've read that for people, it, cannabis is mo most beneficial for people whose brains have been fully developed. 
Um, so if you're a recreational user or even want to use it for, you know, uh, medical purposes, it's best if your brain is fully developed. So I'd say around 21 and above. Okay. I'll be talking to one of my heroes, and I am talking to my uncle, Uncle XL Blackshire. How you doing this morning, Uncle? Doing great. I'm fantastic. Yeah. Good. Did you um uh I last time we talked last week you had just received your COVID shot. Did you recover okay from that? Yeah, no problem at all with it. I uh, just I have to, uh, take a second shot in twenty days, so I, the first shot it was you know wasn't uh, it wasn't uh, bad at all. No problem. That's good to hear. Well, as I said, I'm talking to one of my heroes. Uh, growing up as a kid, I thought he was a giant. I thought he was the richest man in the world. And I thought he was the coolest guy on earth. So um, <laughs> he's, he's my dad's younger brother by a year, correct? Right. <laughs> um, but he, um, for us, he just seemed like he, he gave us possibilities. He, uh, he was one of the first black families to live in an all-white area of St. Uh, Louis County. Um, he had a great job, even though, I'm going to be honest with you, I don't recall or never knew what you actually did. <laughs> Could you tell well, me? Well, the job that I had then, I was, I was a liquor store manager. Okay. So then I uh, put that aside, then I became uh, the supervision of a company called Wallow Electric manufacturing company. And I was warehouse supervisor and traffic manager there. Well, that's where I retired from. Now, uh, you married Auntie Lily, as we called her. And right. And you uh, settled in Kenlock. But before we get into all that, uh, you were born in St. Louis. What, what, what were your earlier recollections of growing up in St. Louis in the 30s and 40s? Well, when I was born in Holman, Houston, 1934, which was an all-black hospital. During those days, we had a uh, hospital for the blacks and a hospital for the whites. And, uh, <coughs> excuse me. So uh, in my days, during the time, we still had outhouses out, out, out here still in the city. No electricity. If you couldn't afford them. My father worked with WPA, which is Working People's Association, which is the government sponsored uh, entity. They work from sun up to sundown with a dollar a day. <clears throat> My mother, she, she couldn't uh, work it because during those days, most of the women stayed home with the kids and they raised the children. Uh, I had a house that one home that I grew up in. We, we had two stoves, we had a, a cast iron stove in the kitchen and then in the uh, living room. You had an oil stove, oil burner, and no electricity, and they used candlelight and coal oil lamps, which you had to study by. Probably don't even manage to keep us together until I uh, finished elementary school. And I now, elementary school at 12, and I went to high school, and finished high school at 16. Yeah. And I went in the Marine Corps three years. I was in the Korean War. The war started in 1950. My oldest brother, Percy, uh, your father. Yes. He was uh, he was uh, he was stationed at that time in Kobe, Japan, when the war first started, and they, he was in the 24th Infantry. And 
and they took the whole infantry and they moved into Korea. They'll uh, fight off the North Koreans, which was trying to overtake the South. Yeah. And then, uh, I think, and then he, uh, he, got, he was wounded, and he was, uh, came back home, and then that's when I went in. He, he came back in 51. That's when I, yeah, I went in with them 51, and I went to Korea in 52, a lot of party around them. Yeah. And then on December 52, and 13 months and 10 days there, we had a war ended in 53, 4th of July, when they signed the peace. And I had, we had to, I took the whole first Marine Division out of Korea, and then we went to Vietnam in a block of position with the French. French was pulling out, and we went in a block of position to protect them so they could come out. Was with them five days and five nights. And after that, we went back to Korea, and then they had to come home in 54. Because it was the time we went to uh, Vietnam it was in 53. It was in January of 53. My, uh, we only stayed there for four to five days and five nights. And I returned back to Korea. And in uh, 54, we went to Haiti, uh, Nebraska. That's where I was discharged from. So um, was it quite common for young black males back then to go in the service at 16 and 14 and 15? Well, no, it wasn't. Well, what happened? How this happened? That you you wouldn't you couldn't get in the service. You had to be seventeen at least, and your parents had a time for you. What happened? A lot of a lot of the young black men they wouldn't put the age up because they looked matured enough and lied about the age in order to get in the service. But it wasn't uh, something that it was. It was out of <laughs> something you shouldn't. You shouldn't have done, but they did in order to uh, advance a better life than what what was offered to them at the time. But then in St. Louis back then, you could uh, you could you could ride anywhere in the, in, in the trolley car, what we call them, street cars, and the bus. It had a few buses, but mainly a lot of uh, trolley cars, and and you had uh, you had mountains for black people to drink out of, separately from white mountains. You, couldn't use the same uh, toilet facility uh, at all. You, you you had your own your own schools, all black schools, and <laughs> we only had three high schools in St. Louis at the time. And one of them, the oldest one, was Sumner. Yeah, <clears throat> that's where I went to school. Right, and then Michelle was the one where I went and had Washington Tech Technical School. And you, and depending on what part of the city you lived in, you were allocated to. One of those three, the uh, people that, uh, the kids who had families and fathers, had jobs that was paying pretty good, like chauffeurs and butlers and porters and doctors and lawyers and kids. And they, they mainly went to Sumner, and the other kids went to Rashawn and what So let me ask you this. Growing up in segregation, did that anger you, or you just took it in stride, or you... Oh, I could Well, yeah, you were... You was angry, but you took it in stride also because you really didn't have no choice. You did what you had, what you had to do uh, in order to survive. It, just, it was uh, bad during those same time. Uh, I can remember when, when Billy Holiday made a song about strange fruit. Uh, the, the government started harassing her because so uh, related to how black men was being lynched and hung on trees, and she made a song. Going through that, and the government didn't like to they arrest her, so she had to stop singing. So back in those in those days, if you travel, uh, 
melee. If you had an automobile that had access to an automobile, you couldn't go to a, no hotel with a white house. You had to go off the highway. You had to go, as they go, they go across the railroad tracks in, in the black neighborhood and all the bad accommodations and whatnot. And a lot of people don't know that song. Well, young people don't know the latest song that Nat King Cole made, Route 66. Yes. If you listen to it, you'll it'll give you the route that blacks could take when they were traveling from uh, St. Louis or Chicago going to California. It let you know what city is best to stop that you'd be welcome in and one that you wouldn't be welcome in. It was, it was, it was a mess. And then you couldn't uh, movie houses. We had our own movie theaters <laughs> in St. Louis. Now, I was told in some of the theaters in, this, in the southern states, the blacks went to the same theater that the whites went to, but the blacks had to sit up on, uh, on the second and the balcony, and the white people sit down up under. But in St. Louis, you had your own, your own uh, theaters to go to and your own uh, hotels and motels. And, and we had blacks had good business then. We had restaurants till the integration. I think that's what about, about integration because uh, the white man was losing that revenue to inside that maybe we, we better start, you know, integrating these things because like the Fox Theater, which is the main attraction still here in St. Louis on Grand, we couldn't start going to that uh, theater until two segments that you would hear from family members of mine and the first voice you heard was my niece Ashley Blackshear who's into growing cannabis and uh, trying to live that life and making life better for her son and daughter and I appreciate her time and it's just been great to see her growth and the second voice you heard was my uncle XL Blackshire and yes there being three different generations of my uncle, my uncle, who was my uh, you know my grandfather's son, myself, and my niece, and there is a different pr- pronunciation of the last name. So, but you also got to learn from them different things. Unfortunately, we had to lay our dear uncle XL to rest in October of this year 2022 but you can hear a short snippet of the knowledge he laid on us that seg- uh, segment and that interview actually wound up being a two-part interview and being one of the most listened to interviews that I had on this show so well we're going to take a break here hear from our sponsor Mike Bryant and then come back and deal with uh, some people who've helped me along the way just continue my life and my journey here on the JB's Low Tech Podcast. When you need someone to listen, a lawyer you know and trust. Hi, I'm Mike Bryant. Over the years at holiday time, Bradshaw Bryant has been able to help thousands of central Minnesotans arrive home safely from the bars. This year, we could very well be celebrating at home, but there's still lots of things that we can do to ensure that you stay safe on the roads, like slowing down, 
giving yourself enough time that you're not in a rush, no texting and driving, hands-free phone calls, and of course, no drinking and driving. Please be safe so that you get home to your loved ones. I'm Mike Bryant from Bradshaw and Bryant. This year, my biggest wish is that we all remain happy, healthy, and even a little more kind to one another. A lawyer who will fight with confidence and pride. A working harder, going farther. With Mike Bryant on your side. Seeking justice for the injured. Bradshaw and Bryant. We're going to hear next from a couple of people who helped me along the way. One is a former college roommate of mine, and one is a broadcasting legend who got me into broadcasting on kind of a running joke, but he's been a great friend of mine. And we'll listen to both of them next here on the JB's Low Tech Podcast. We're back, ladies and gentlemen. JB's Low Tech Podcast. Uh, I said I was going to do something a little bit different today, and that is I'm going to have my first inter- interview for the podcast. Um, I'm having my first guest is somebody who actually slept on my couch on, in college, but, <laughs> but he wanted me to refer to him as King, but his... <laughs> His actual title is filmmaker, and he's Minnesota's own hero, Van Hayden. How you doing, Van? Good, JB. How you doing, brother? I'm just trying to make sense of whatever what's going on in this world right now, man. So, yeah, I was kind of joking about that King reference. <laughs> LeBron, LeBron beat me to that one, I think. <laughs> no problem. So where are you located right now? Well, um, right now I'm just I'm in Santa, um, uh, I just left Santa Monica, California. I'm in, uh, here in uh, Pasadena, where I'm staying uh, for a few more weeks uh, uh, while we uh, are making first season of the new Keenan Thompson show. The show is called Keenan. Okay. That we're shooting at Universal Studios in Burbank. All right. Well. That kind of leads into my uh, first question for you. Kind of give us a uh, history of your of your works and who you kind of worked for in, in Hollywood and out in New York and other places. Okay, well, I, I was in, you know, I, I never planned to get into the film business, so to speak. I, you know, like you, I went to the U, uh, and we were roommates at the U in college back in the 80s. Right. And uh, I was going to be a journalist. Uh, and my plan was to uh, become like a serious journalist and work at a place, you know, in D.C. In covering, you know, national politics. That was my plan. And that's what I studied and that's what I set out to do. So one year, I think it was 1986, we were at the uh, National National Association of Black Journalists Convention, uh, and they screened She's Gotta Have It, uh, Spike Lee's first feature film. Right. And I was so impressed with the film, it just kind of shook me up, and I just sat in the audience with another Minneapolis uh, uh, friend of ours, Michelle Norris, who, who's done big things in 
journalism. You know, she's she she went around the country with Michelle Obama when Michelle Obama's book came out and was interviewing her. But we were at the convention together, and uh, we just sat in that audience, kind of mesmerized by what we just just saw. Here was a young African American uh, storyteller, really, uh, who you know you know presented his story about this woman uh, named Nola Darling, right? And uh, you know he, he he kind of made the audience think. Uh, it's a little lighthearted comedy, and what this is true as you know, three different boyfriends. And, but what was really cool about it, and what I thought was very, uh, very special about the film, was at the end he, he, real, he realized what he's really doing is he's examining uh, how women are treated if they have more than one boyfriend, and how men are treated if they have like three girls, you know, on the side. Right. And there's a big difference, you know. So he was looking at that kind of double standard between men and women. And I just thought the way he did it, I mean, it was funny, it was fresh, it was, you know, it, it was so well done. I just thought, wow, this, this guy, you know, he's impressive. He's uh, pretty special. So and I'm um, likely, yeah. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask you, so how does that, uh, viewing that then gets you onto the road of becoming a filmmaker. Well, I'll tell you, I, I after that movie, I'm sitting there in the audience, um, you know, I, I said, wow, this is someone I really want to kind of watch and see what happens to them. And over the next two or three years, he came up with school days and then do the right thing. And by then, you know, I was finishing up college and I had to make some decisions about my career. And I, you know, I had gotten some offers to go to work for some different news organizations. And and when it was it came time to make a choice, I told uh, I had a summer internship with the Associated Press, and I had to decide what I wanted to do at the end of the internship, where I wanted to be placed with City. And I said, you know, I want to take two years, and you know, see if I can make something out of this film thing. And I'm just going to, you know, spend the next two years not practicing journalism. Just, you know, get some kind of temporary job, you know, uh, and see if I can become a filmmaker. And, uh, you know, my goal was pretty much to do what Spike Lee had done, write, uh, direct, and produce movies. And, you know, I didn't I felt I didn't really have to reinvent the wheel. So um, a friend of mine said, look, you know, Spike is getting ready to do his next movie. Why don't you write him a letter in this production office in Brooklyn? I was still in Minneapolis and South Minneapolis in a little apartment. Had a, a you know, temporary job, you know, kind of part-time job uh, at a hotel there with Foreman, valet, limo driver, cellman. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I kind of remember that. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I went to my boss at the hotel. I said, hey, you know, you know, uh, well, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. So I said, I said, okay, yes, good idea. I wrote a letter to Mike uh, at his production company, and I dropped it off 
I went down, I remember going down to the airport post office. I didn't know when the film was started or anything. So it was just something on my on my heart to say, let me, let me get the thing in the mail right away. So I sent the letter off, and uh, the following Tuesday, I get a call from my production company, uh, 40 Acres of Mill Film Works in Brooklyn. And uh, I was still in Minneapolis. And, you know, I, I talked to this guy who was on the phone. Uh, he was the production assistant uh, who had worked on Do the Right Thing. His name was Eric Knight. And uh, the more we talked, the more I tried to find some kind of possibility in the how I could, you know, possibly come out there and, and get on whatever the next film Spike was going to be doing. And as it turned out, Spike was in pre-production. Um, and, you know, and Eric says, well, can you be here? Now, this was on a Tuesday, Tuesday morning. Can you be here on Thursday? I said, you mean like in two days? <laughs> and he said, yeah, yeah. I said, well, you know, uh, we, and he told me that they filled all the paid uh, production assistant jobs. And a production assistant or a PA is kind of a entry-level job uh, where you're kind of a golfer and, yeah. you know, you're, you're, you're doing a lot of different things. Um, so anyway... I said, well, wait a minute, when does the film start? So we start, we, you know, we start next week, and the following Monday. I said, really? Wow. I, I didn't realize it was that soon. Well, I can't be there on Thursday, but I'll tell you what, I can, you know, he, and what he said was, look, all of the paid positions are full, but if you could come out here and find your own place to stay and everything, would you be interested in working? free on the movie as an unpaid intern. You'll have all the same responsibilities as the production assistant. You just won't get paid anything. And fortunately, I saved up some money. I had some little money in the bank. And so I went to my boss at the hotel and said, well, we can't guarantee you that your job will still be here when, you, when you're done. And I thought, oh, you know, but I, I got to go for this. I really have to, you know, have to take, take this shot. Yeah. This was my, uh, yeah, it's like in uh, Eight Mile, you know, you got one chance, you know, you know, what do you do? And uh, that was my my eight minute, or eight, my eight mile moment. And uh, so I said, okay, well, yeah, I got I got to take the risk. And yeah, I found someone to double up my apartment, and I just jumped in my car and uh, packed up some clothes and. And got on the got on the highway and drove out to, drove to Brooklyn. Now, before I did that, I made a call. I was very blessed. I had I had I had stayed for several months in New York uh, two years earlier when I had an internship at New York Newsday. Okay. And I was very lucky and very blessed because I had a half sister who who lived out there with her husband in Brooklyn. And now they had, like a year later, they had just bought a house in Staten Island. And so I called and I begged and I said, look, you know, I have this opportunity, you know, to help me make my dream come true. I said, okay, let me talk to my husband, blah, blah, blah. And I said, okay, here's the deal. Um, on the weekend, you have to agree to say, you can, we'll, you know, we'll let you stay here for free, but on the weekends, 
what you have to do is you have to clean all of the bathrooms, and you have to dust all three floors of the house, and you have to vacuum all three floors. I did that. I'll do it. Yeah, I, I would have done anything probably at that point. So you're so now I got a so yeah now I got a place to stay right uh, and I got my plan I'm getting on the getting on the highway uh, and I'm driving I'm gonna head out to New York and I got there Sunday afternoon checked in dropped myself off at my sister's place uh, learned to catch the ferry from Staten Island to, to Manhattan and then you know you take the train from Manhattan to you know Brooklyn or wherever be filming that day and uh come you know first thing 5 a.m monday morning i was standing on the set in uh brooklyn heights which was uh the first location that we were going to be shooting for the next 50 days we we're going to be moving all over all over new york at different locations but that was the first one so and um you uh your family kind of bounced around and um you, but you made it through you know, you got your high school diploma. Then you started to um, look for work. And one of the places you looked for work was radio. How and yep. why radio? Um, and by the way, I did get a high school diploma, but I I really never graduated. I left high school when I was 16, and they asked me if I would come back for six months for just homeroom and then leave. <laughs> they would give me a high school diploma, which means they wanted the money. Or... or you were the world's biggest pain in the ass. Which one? <laughs> well, that, well, that's just it. That part's a given. I, I guarantee you I was a massive pain in the ass when I was a teenager. That I can guarantee you. But, yeah, so, yeah. Um, why radio? When I was 14 years old, I was at Cleveland Park on Lowry and Russell Avenue North. There's Cleveland School. I think it's a, there's a uh, post office there now, I think. Okay. <clears throat> but uh, Cleveland School was there, and behind Cleveland School is Cleveland Park. And that's uh, when I was that age, when I was you know, 13, 14, 15, 16, we used to go to Cleveland Park all the time. My friends all lived in that neighborhood. We lived at 2955, then 3015, then 3115 Russell. We lived on three houses on uh, in about a one-block stretch wow. because 30th and 31st is the same block. There's no street on for 31st on Russell there. Mm-hmm. But we just kept moving up the block. And um, I was at Cleveland Park one day, and somebody came over and said, Hey, Tom, your mom's on the radio. I said, What? Sam Sherwood was a guy who was a big name in radio back in the day. Mm -hmm. Um, And he was interviewing my mother about my brother, who was in Vietnam at the time, my brother Terry. He was in the United States Marine Corps, and he was overseas. Um, Actually, we didn't even know where he was. We thought he was in Okinawa. Right. Um, because I, I don't know why at that point you're talking about the very beginning of the conflict, I guess, uh, uh, that he, they really didn't want people to know where, you know, United States soldiers and Marines and Naval and Air Force people were. So, um, Sam sure was trying to contact my brother so he could, you know, put her on the phone and kind of honor the servicemen. And my mother got all excited about it. And they tried for about an hour, uh, and I thought to myself, they're looking for my brother on the other side of the world, and my mother's on the radio talking to thousands and thousands of people. That's what I want to do. I, I want to do what Sam Sherwood did. I want to, I want to, you know, try to, you know, try to entertain people, try to make people happy. I love playing music anyway, you know, as a drummer and a singer and all that stuff. That was the day I decided I, that's what I want to do. I want to reach out. 
like Sam Sherwood reached out to my mother to try to help her with, you know, this wonderful technology and also be a massive pain in the ass in that <laughs> technology. So, you know, that's well, when it happened, OJB, it was that day. Well, I've known you, as we spoke earlier, almost 35 years. And this is the first Gosh. time I've ever heard that story. Yeah, we don't, I don't talk about that story much because, once again, people, people go, well, how would you as a 14-year-old boy know that's what you wanted to do? But it had such an impact on me that my mother had such a voice. Radio has been misused in that way, by the way. You should not turn radio over to news people or hosts or whatever. The hosts are there to try to make people happier, to inform people. If you can make people laugh, that'd be, be great. But the number one thing is get the hell out of the way. Right. Entertain, then get out of the way and let people have a voice, which I think the KQ Morning Show has done a great job. And, and that was because of Dave Hamilton and all the way back to Mark Steinmetz. Mm-hmm. The people have always had a voice on KQRS. That's true. And that... Um... Well, we'll get to the KQ years, but you. Um... <laughs> okay. Ooh, that sounded good. That'll no, it's great. it's it's all good, you know. But KQ was not your first stop in radio. Your first stop in radio nope. was um, KSTP. Yeah, well, I got, I got a job at KDAN, which was thirteen seventy thirteen seventy AM. Uh, I don't even think there's a radio station on at that frequency anymore. Maybe there is, but I don't think so. <clears throat> but I. Um... Oh, I've never told you the story of the, about the first radio call I ever took. I never told you that? I don't think so. I'm at KDAN, which was a uh, uh, it was kind of a talk station, I guess, a little bit. Played a little bit of music. Played a little country music, I think. It was, kind of, it was a radio station trying to find itself. And B.J. Clark was the program director, and he hired me. And I was on the air. And so I'm on the air. Now, you have to understand the tone of my voice. Plus, in those days, I didn't project much. I had to learn how to do it. Mm-hmm. So my first days on the radio, when I'd go on the radio, I'd go like this. You'd listen to KDAN 1370 AM and uh, hear the little Porter Wagner and Dolly. But that's how I used to talk. <laughs> I didn't project, right? Right. So um, <clears throat> the phone is blowing off. The, the very first break I ever did on the radio, mm-hmm. um, the phone just blew up. People were calling. All the lines lit up. And I'm like, my God, they love me. Well, that wasn't it because... <laughs> I answered one of the, on the request line. Mm-hmm. I said, KDAN. And the person on the other end said, get that big N off the air. Oh, Jesus Christ. First call I ever <laughs> took, JD. <laughs> the guy, because of the tone of my voice, right. the guy thought I was borrowed. It was a guy. I, I, mm-hmm. I shouldn't have revealed that, but it was a man. And he, he didn't like that, uh, that those urban dwellers being on his radio oh. station, apparently. <laughs> It is what it is. And, it is what it is, yeah. You know, unfortunately, we still face that type of idiocy. But Oh, yeah. Um, so from from there, where, where did, uh, how did things go? Okay, so I met KDAN for about six months, and eventually got a new PD, and he ended up firing me. And mm-hmm. God, hard to believe that I got fired. Jeez, really hard <laughs> to believe. So then the next thing, B.J. Clark reached out to a friend of his up in, at KNOX in Grand Forks, North Dakota. Mm-hmm. You want to talk about a guy being out of his element. I mean, moving from St. Louis, where you grew up here, was a change in your life. Yes. Me moving to Grand Forks out of North Minneapolis, holy God. <laughs> I could not understand what they were saying. Because <laughs> they had that, you know, way up north accent. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm up there again, and I'm still trying to learn how to do radio and all the rest of it. And, oh, my God, a great doctor. I'm like, 
what? <laughs> I had never heard that. I mean, you know, right. Minnesotans all have it a little bit. There's no doubt about that. But I'd never heard it. They would, instead of t, like the, mm-hmm. the man, they would say D, D man. I'm like, D man? What? <laughs> I had, you know, but I got used to it. It was great. And the people were very, very nice. I, I, I uh, ended up leaving that job and uh, came back down to Minneapolis and a guy named Jim Chanel was the program director. He had just started uh, 1500 KSTP, a station that had been around forever, legendary radio station. You know, the Hubbards have always owned it. Yes. And so I called him and I said, I would love to come. I don't care if you want me to sweep the floor or what you want me to do, but I would love to come and work for you guys. Just there. It's a wonderful radio station. I ended up calling him, I believe, 83 times till he finally hired me. Well, that's I persistent. literally did call. I did. That's <laughs> persistent. Yes, that would be persistent. No doubt about it. Those two people, ladies and gentlemen, are a former college roommate of mine who's now an associate producer in Hollywood, Van Hayden. And the other gentleman, of course, is a great Tom Bernard. Two people that were involved in my life. Van was a roommate of mine and slept on wrecked the couch of mine in college. And Tom Bernard, who he and I were on radio together in the Twin Cities for 22 years. And Tom just wrapped up uh, 37 years of morning radio at KQRS here in the Twin Cities. And um, like I stated, I won't be surprised if somebody claims him as soon as they possibly can. Well, one of the things I was always told in college and work college athletics, you never get rich. You're hired to be fired. But the main thing you will take away is the relationships. And I've interviewed plenty of people over the over these past couple of years that uh, were co-workers but became let's face it friends and extended family there's no other way of saying it and we'll hear from a couple of them here next here on show 100 on the jb's low-tech podcast and we're back so Mike, when you go back and listen to this again, you'll hear a very nice tune by uh, uh, Donald Fagan, the lead singer of uh, Steely Dan. Oh, yes. Yeah, it's one of his uh, solo songs. His, oh. uh, yeah. So when we left off, you had just arrived to the University of Minnesota. You were making friends. You, you'd taken over for Fred, and things are going smoothly, and you're, you're molding the program into your own. Uh, mm-hmm. You won a Big Ten championship in, uh, was it 2018, 17? Uh, 19. 19. Yeah. And um, I should know that because I have a ring sitting over there for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then you get the news, and um, I understand if you can't talk much about this, but then you get the news that um, things may be taking a bad turn as far as uh, – sports at the University of Minnesota because of COVID and uh, funding and other issues. Mm-hmm. How have you been handling that, and 
I'm just going to throw the floor open for you to say whatever you want sure. to say. Well, you know, it's been a challenge uh, because of the uh, enormity of it all, you know. Yeah. And um, especially, it, it's funny, I've, I've had, uh, like I mentioned earlier about my kind of path to get here, I've had many different opportunities to do things, and I've always left on my own terms, right? So this time, leaving on somebody else's terms was a little hard to uh, kind of swallow, you know. So obviously, kind of a grieving process in a way, you know. You kind of go through the various stages of grief, and uh, and you get through it. You know, it's like it's like anything. I, another one of my life philosophies, JB, I'll share with you, is no matter how bad a situation is at the moment, you give it a few days, or in this case, maybe a few months, uh, it's never quite as bad as you, you thought it was. Because what happens is when something changes that you used to, it kind of forces you to evolve to a certain a different place, you know? So I think there's been some evolution going on with, in my own mind and how I want to proceed with things. And, you know, I'm getting up there in age, so it's like, it would have been nice to get to 65, but I honestly feel like I got probably 15 more years of, of coaching in me. You know, yes. I'll, be 63, I'll be 63 in May, and most people wouldn't take me as a 63-year-old, and I don't, I don't feel like what most people who are 63 should be like, but I, I feel like there's vibrancy in me because I'm around young people a lot, you know, and around people like you, JB, that has has like a really optimistic look on things, you know, and you've, you've had a lot of different experiences that's kind of molded you to who you are, like, like I have, and have molded me into who I am, and most of them have been really good and positive and, uh, you know, enthusiastic, and there's like a lot of purpose on things, so, um, so this, you know, it's been hard, but uh, it's been hard on our guys, mostly, you know, to try to keep them motivated to, to have a, a final season knowing that, um, you know, you're, the, the, the school that you made a commitment to is no longer committed to you, you know? Right. <laughs> I, I feel like there's a commitment uh, equation, right? Yes. And you, you, you talk to these kids, you convince them to come to school, and they commit to you, and you got to commit certain things to them. And I, I feel like some of that commitment got cut short. So that's been, that's been hard, and, uh, but it's not the end of the world, you know? Um, so, again, it's like it creates the need to evolve. Right. And, I've been trying to evolve, and um, you know, at first, um, you know, you go through anger and disappointment and sadness, and you know, all, all the different emotions of of the situation. And I found that that is that is drama. That is kind of wasted energy, right? Mm-hmm. And so I'm trying to, I'm trying to, you know, I keep falling back every so often to kind of the anger thing, and I have to get myself out of that. And I've, I've been able to do a pretty good job of that, I think. Understandable. Uh, for the most part. Understandable, yeah, so and, Mike. Believe just, me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so I think there's some some commonalities here, right? Yes, because <laughs> yeah. Well, you know my story, so I'll just leave it at that. I hear you. I hear you. <laughs> but um, so what's what's been going on is all right. We're still hope, hopeful that there's a way to um, overturn the decision to drop programs, but I think that's going to be a tough one, right? And uh, correct. All right. What's, what's the next thing that we? We had talked to the regents and the, the administration about creating a uh, revenue-generating model to help support, uh, create a self-sustaining program. Right. So I've been working on, on that. Uh, that's kind of a long-term thing, but on a, sh- on a more short-term or medium-term, um, in the process of transitioning to a, uh, a competitive club program here at the university. The University of Minnesota needs to still have gymnastics, whether it's an NCAA varsity program our college competitive club program, it's still gymnastics at the college level. And there's, 
there's kids out there that want to do gymnastics at the college level, and there's kids out there that want to do it at Minnesota. And there's a lot of kids in the state of Minnesota that would, you know, give their left arm to be part of the Minnesota Golden Gopher program. Now, if it's not an NCAA program, but it's still a a vibrant, um, competitive program, I think that serves a purpose. So I want to, I want to be able to provide opportunities for kids that want to do gymnastics, and if they want to do it here at Minnesota, they're going to have to come to see me. And I'm going to say, come on down, let's do it. So I've had a lot of conversations with um, people over in the Rec Well Department. Uh, George Brown, who's the director, he's been a great um, founding board. We've had several meetings that have been really positive and optimistic, and I'm just excited to be around people that are like that, you know? Right. And, uh, you know, I've talked to uh, some people that are, you know, the upper level administration, just because the number one priority right now for us is to be able to keep the the gym in Cook Hall operational. Right. If we don't have a gym, we don't have a program. So the key is how do we how do I keep that gym going? And you know, Recwell oversees the competitive club programs here at right. the University of Minnesota. So that's that's kind of the direction I'm going right now because I, I need to have something uh, to hang on to, right? And uh, by having that competitive club program, I have something to hang on to. And we have, you know, the the athletic administration has has honored all the scholarships that the guys currently on the team have. So most of them are going to stick around and finish their, you know, their academic careers here. Uh, a couple of our guys have brokered some deals to be able to transfer next year and continue doing gymnastics mm-hmm. at the NCAA varsity level. So I, I applaud them. You know, I, I'm doing everything I can to help them. Uh, if that's what their dream is. I'm going to do what I can to help them out. You know, I'm not going to, uh, my commitment is still strong to them. Even if they end up going somewhere else, my commitment is to see them succeed. Um, uh, but me... the rest of the guys, they're, they're going to stay here. You know, I've been talking to them, just you know, not pushing it, pushing it too hard. But I said, hey, if we have this club program, would you be interested in competing another year or two years? It's like, yeah, I'd do that. So anyway, there's some some good. Uh, we have kind of a nucleus of a team that's ready to keep going, which is pretty exciting. Let me. People have to understand. Back when you played college ball, you didn't have 40 bowl games. You had 20 or less, and to get into a bowl game was an actual big deal back then. And Mm -hmm. now you can get into a bowl game with a losing record, but uh, it is what it is. But, yeah, I mean, Mm -hmm. it's such an accomplishment to uh, also play on the biggest, you know, the biggest stage as you did. What what, uh, things do you bring from your time in, uh, you know, the World Football League and the NFL? You know, um, you, you find out in a hurry when you get to the professional level how different things are. And what I mean by that is um, it's still great, it's still fun, it's still football, and all of that makes it the greatest thing in the world for me. Um, but it is a business. And, you know, at, at the college level, I realize the big financial and all the rest of that, but I think as a player and as a student athlete, um, there's, a, there's a difference. And then when you get to that next level, that professional level, it's a business, and um, you you uh, you're woken up to that very uh, very quickly. But that being said, you're still a big kid. Uh, I look at Tom Brady; I see the smile on his face and how he plays football still at 43 years old, and uh, and I think that almost says it all because you know Patrick Mahomes is unbelievable. Um, and the, the excitement that these guys have got to have going into this game and, and returning for Kansas City and Tampa is a franchise that I played for, and, and I know how hungry people are down there for, for them to get to the Super Bowl again. And um, I think it's just a, 
it's a, it's an amazing feat to see how how these guys were able to come together so quickly. They had a great defense coming in, but they added Tom Brady. Obviously, you bring in Grant, you bring in Leonard Fournette, you bring in a few other players here and there, and suddenly this is a team that gets to play at home <laughs> in the Super Bowl. And um, so at at this point in time, it's not about the business side. It's truly this is. It's fun time, and these guys get the opportunity to be, you know, the only football game on anywhere, and you know, hundreds of millions of people across the across the world to be watching them, and it's uh, it's exciting. Even in a pandemic year, I don't think uh, I don't think that loses any of that. I think uh, I was I was just last uh, two weeks ago, JB. I was at Kansas City for the Kansas City um, AFC Championship game. Yes. And I'll tell you what, the parking lot was pretty close to full, <laughs> and I, and the stadium was about whatever it was, 20%, 25% right. occupied. Those people were loud. They did not need to pipe in anybody. They, the people that were there were loud. It felt like a real football game. It was a real football game, and I think as a player, once you put the helmet on, there could be three people or there could be 100,000 people, but you're playing football, and it's what you want to do, and I think those guys uh, – showed that this is they still it, the fun part is it still can be a game even though it's a business it can be a game and when you watch when I was watching Patrick Mahomes run across the field and get everybody excited before the game even started and he's literally circling the field fatiguing himself mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you can see you can see the enthusiasm that these guys have and how much they really love what they do and it's um, it's special, and the Super Bowl obviously is incredibly special for all these guys. Even Tom Brady, as many as he's been to, I guarantee you he will say that this one will be his biggest one, and this one will be the most exciting one. I mean, I, I, I honestly believe that because it is an amazing accomplishment to be able to be in that final two going into tomorrow. Once again, as I stated, relationships is the most important thing. And those two voices you just heard, one was, uh, the first was Mike Burns, head coach of the now club men's gymnastics team at the University of Minnesota. It used to be a varsity team after, before it was reduced to a club sport. 
And the second voice you heard was Peter Nigerian, former linebacker great at the University of Minnesota and uh, broadcaster here in the Twin Cities. And he also has his own show about money on YouTube with his brother, John Nigerian. So it's always good to talk to Pete. Next, we're going to talk to a couple of people who may be a little bit more well-known than even those two guys. Here next on the JB's Low Tech Podcast. Back, ladies and gentlemen, to the JB's Low Tech Podcast. As I stated, um, today's guest is a friend. She's also a mother. She's a wife. Uh, I know she's a great mother. I need to talk to Mark and see how good of a... No, I'm just kidding. Uh, (laughs) And uh, she's a trailblazer. She's a uh, pioneer in in a lot of ways. And uh, very respected in her line of business. Her name is Michelle Tafoya. To all my friends, yes, I know people like Michelle Tafoya. And uh, Michelle, welcome to the show. (laughs) And I get to say I know people like JB. But that was quite an introduction. And I think um, you oversold me a little bit, but I appreciate it. Man, there's no overselling here. Michelle and I actually worked together at KQRS. So, and Michelle and I have a connection. Her husband's father, Bruce Vandersall, allowed me when I was an 18 year old punk from the streets <laughs> of St. Louis when I first came to the University of Minnesota to sit in defensive staff meetings and learn how to be a coach. So, I am always grateful to Bruce. Well, we miss Bruce a lot. That is for sure. He's one of the all-time greats. I'm so lucky to have had him as a father-in-law. I'm so grateful he was a grandfather to my children while he was around, and he's definitely gone too soon. Yes. Um, but, you know, uh, but you and I are really lucky to have had him in our lives, so I'm grateful for that. Yeah, he, he looked at me and said, you can sit here, you can listen, Um may even ask questions but whatever we discuss in this room stays in this room i was like (laughs) sure because why would i be an idiot to run and tell players what the coaches are saying and destroy the relationship i have with the coaches and this opportunity i have to actually learn something so i hope you learned something i learned a lot on how to you know my uh 20 years of youth and a couple of years of high school coaching all you know started in that room that day so um so as i said um michelle and i work together but what and this is the question i ask all my guests what is your origin story because i like to hear people stay say it in their own words what is your origin story well i'll try to boil it down for people so i don't you know turn people away um no I'm the youngest of four kids, um, and uh, there's a lot of detail about my family life that I will leave off because it would just take too long. But suffice to say, we were a family that was very interested in sports, um, in particular my dad. And that's how he raised us, not only to play, but to be fans of the game. And uh, he turned me into a San Francisco 49ers fan before it was cool to be a San Francisco fan. I'm talking a long time ago here. Yes. I'm talking 
you know, just before Joe Montana and Bill Walsh got there. And then we were rewarded for all our suffering when Bill Walsh showed up and then they drafted Joe Montana. So that was the beginning of my love affair with the NFL. And uh, I just carried, it stayed with me always. I've just always loved football. Just to me, it's like the perfect game. I know it's a dangerous game, but it's, um, it's amazing. So, um, you know, I went through college and uh, went to California, Berkeley, where I would go across the bay and go to Niners games whenever I could. And then um, got out of college and didn't really know what to do yet. I, I kept thinking about the media, went back to graduate school, got my master's in business. But while I was there, I kept saying to myself, you know, in my mind, I want to be doing something in the media. I, I you know, So with that fallback, I started of, of the management business, which I felt was like a, you know, a landing cushion if I never needed one. I just ventured out and I just put this awful demo tape together, which I'm sure I would just die looking at now. But I put a demo tape together and I sent it everywhere I possibly could. And the first people to really to hire me with with, you know, actual a paycheck was out in Charlotte, North Carolina. And so I packed my bags from Southern California and I moved across the country and I took the job in radio five hours a day on the radio sports wow. talk. And yeah, it was, a, it was a long show. <laughs> and uh, but it helped me a lot. Learn how to improvise, learn how to you know, study. I just I I really just engrossed myself in everything. I would read everything I possibly could. And I was learning and learning every day. And um, then KFAN in Minneapolis got in touch with me after we broke a story in North Carolina and they flew me out here to tour around and asked me if I might be interested in moving here. And you can imagine a girl from Manhattan beach, California, who was, you know, it's like, well, you know what, I'll go and I'll live there for one year yeah, and then I'll move on to the next place. So I came and I was working for KFAN and then I got hired by WCCO TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the next thing I knew I saw my first spring in Minnesota, which kind of is like mirroring what we're seeing right now. Right. As you and I talk. And I fell in love with the place. Yes. And I just, I couldn't even believe it happened. I really couldn't. But I had never experienced change of seasons before. So, and then, you know, speaking of Bruce Vandersall, I met his son, Mark (laughs) Vandersall. And then that kind of sealed the deal. So, um, we've decided to stay here, raise our family here, but I continued to work at CCO. Then I got hired by CBS sports, um, spent five years there, then moved over to ESPN, spent, se- I want to say seven year- years there. I'm kind of losing track. And then I, I wound up, um, doing some stuff for ABC sports during the NBA mm-hmm. with Al Michaels yes. and Al said to his producer on Monday night football, hey, I really think you ought to talk to this Michelle person. And they hired me on Monday Night Football. And it was like a, it was like the, that was the turning point in my career, really. Um, I mean, the major one, like just now it's on a different level. You know, Monday Night Football is this iconic show and uh, it was crazy. And so then, you know, I spent five, six, seven years there, I think, two, three, I, I think it was seven and then, you know, my whole crew, Al and John Madden and everyone on our crew moved over to NBC on Sunday Night Football. Right. And I did not. I was asked to stay at ESPN and I was under contract and I really didn't have a choice. But um, about five years into that, 
they um they they came and stole me away nbc stole me away and i've been been there ever since and just been really fortunate to you know when people say time and place and you know there's a lot of luck that is definitely true but i want to remind people that luck is where hard work and preparation and opportunity meet Mm -hmm. so you know and the harder you work the more lucky you get who thinks that this was just a uh, a cakewalk into Sunday night football. Believe me, believe me, believe me. I worked my tail off every single day of my life to arrive at that place. As a young man, as a student, saw Dick Matson at his worst, and yeah. then saw him through the transformation of becoming sober, and uh, him helping me through my uh, college years, and then. Before he retired, he and I got to work as partners, so it was a full circle for me, and it was it was a great ride. You know, he was he was the driving force of me graduating from college. I had come to the University of Minnesota, got homesick, went back home for about six months, realized that I made a big mistake and I needed to come back and go to college, and I called him. And he said, yeah, you can come back, but here are the, the uh, things you got to do. Register, get to school, come back, work for me, and pay, and pay Harry Broadfoot the money you owe him. Because <laughs> I, had, I had lived with Harry for eight months, and I had run up some phone bills and whatnot. Oh, sure, you know, sure. That was long before cell phones and whatnot. Yeah. And uh, I said, okay, I can do that. And, uh, you know, working for him gave me the money to pay Harry off, even though Harry would tell you I've never given him a dime. So Right, right. That's Harry. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, no, he, um, I will say, and I've said this before, Dick Matson was the heartbeat and the soul of that uh, athletic department. Yeah, you know, all he did was run the athletic equipment department, but everything kind of flowed through him. All coaches looked at him as a confidant. All student athletes looked to him as a father, grandfather. By the time he he left, and um, like you said, just a wonderful person. Well, it's it's amazing how many lives you know that you guys in the equipment room really touch. I mean, uh, a lot of guys at their youth that are very impressionable and, and, uh, you know, Dick for a while at his worst, Dick for a while at his best. Um, the memories that a lot of people take from, from, uh, their experiences in college and the leadership that was shown, uh, coming out of that equipment room was tremendous. So for all of you guys, not just Dick, but for, you know, it's, you guys are with the athletes probably more than the coaches are at times. And, uh, it's amazing how many guys you touch and, and, uh, and uh, the memories that are made, it's great. It, you know, men and women, it's just great. It's great. Well, and, you know, you, uh, J.D. Hoyts has actually played a part in signing athletes, you know, <laughs> <laughs> because that's where the recruiting meals happen. Yeah, we've had a great, uh, great run with recruiting. And as of late, uh, uh, pre-COVID, um, when we were recruiting with Richard Patino, instead of bringing the guys down, uh, we'd go out to the house and they'd have the parents. And, uh, and I still remember one evening that, uh, we were out at Richard's house doing a, 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 a recruiting dinner and, 
and I didn't know who the kid was at all. And then uh, I see uh, Richard Coffey and his wife come out. I've known Richard since he played at the U with, with uh, you know, Clem years and yeah. years ago. So yeah. Richard, I remember hugging and, 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 and our guy, Richard Patino, was kind of new to the school. And he's looking at me going, well, how do you, you know, you guys are acting like best friends. Kind of, he's looking at me like sideways because I'm the cook, you know what I mean? Right. And, and, uh, and then to realize that his son, Amir, was uh, being recruited for the U of M, I went, that's just, uh, that's just a tremendous legacy. You know, to see the guys that uh, play there and now their children are growing up and, and they're actually being looked at and coming to our school. It's just, it's awesome. It's tremendous. Yeah, it, it, it by the time I uh, made the transition out, it, uh, I was starting to feel old. And Amir was one of those athletes I looked and went, oh, my God, my classmates' children are starting to show up here. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I yep. went to... I went to, when I was at the U, Richard played the basketball, and Sheba was a track person. So, oh, yeah. yeah. Um, and, you and you know, you'd hear the stories about uh, kids who have never had fine dining or close to fine dining in their life being brought to J.D. Hoyt's and being blown away. It's like, whoa, what, what, you know, what's going on here, this, that, and the other. And it's, it's like, yeah, well, you know, that's our little gem there. But um, uh, and, it was, and it was great because we also did a lot of training table too. Then so the guys yes. could see that they could get a little, uh, you know, a training table during the week from JD Hoyts, and yet that was a restaurant that they remember when they come back and they're in business or you know their professional lives of sports or whatever they do when they when they graduate college and they bring their wives down or their kids down and and they say yeah this is the first place I came to when they recruited me in Minnesota and. It's it, that's and even guys like uh, Daryl Thompson was in the other night. He, mm -hmm. He's a great, great friend and a great customer of Hoyts. And you know, one of his first visits was JD Hoyts when uh, when they brought him in, which was great. And here he is today. You know, he's a big hitter and a big time guy, and right. a big supporter of the U of M and a bolder option. Uh, he's got a foundation going. I mean, uh, it's just a, it's a tremendous, uh, wonderful uh, situation to be in. And here we are, years later, and we're still doing the same thing we were doing back when these guys were 19, 18 year old kids, you know, it's great. Um, I hear a story about when Lawrence Maroney was brought in to JD Hoyts. Okay. For, what's the story? For, <laughs> uh, I can either confirm or deny at this point. <laughs> that, so uh, had, you know, all this wonderful food options and all he wanted was a hamburger. Yeah, that was uh, a true story. <laughs> yep. It's like, dude, you can, you know, Mace is like, hey, Lawrence, you can have lobster, you can have this, you can have that, you can have the biggest steak in your life, this, that, and the other. I just want a hamburger. Yep. <laughs> yeah, we got good burgers, man. Come on. <laughs> yeah, you know, some guys are very, you can tell when they come in, uh, very simple guys, and, and they just want what they want, no matter what it is, whether it's a porterhouse right. or a burger. And we're able to do that for them in, in many aspects. I mean, one of the one of the best recruiters that I've ever known was Silas McKinney. Yes. And, boy, I tell you, when he had a kid that, you know, we needed at the U or whatever, and we do specials every night. It all depends on what the chef's doing. As mm -hmm. you've experienced, you've had a lot of our specials. But right. Silas would call up and give me the kid's name and Mr. Basketball from Ohio, let's just say, and, and uh, you know, give the rundown. The kid likes uh, – uh, some certain steak or whatever. And the next thing you know, the kid comes in and I say, Oh, da -da -da, you're the, you're the guy from Ohio. So you're the Mr. Basketball last year. And then they, you know, 
the civil server would come over to the table and they'd say what the special is tonight. It'd be the steak that this guy likes. And Silas had lined it all up. He was the, he was the, one of the best recruiters. I mean, yes. he worked hard at, he worked hard at his craft and very successful. And uh, he would just uh, very, very informative on what, uh, what kids like. So kids are kids, you know, right. and some kids will take advantage of it too. Oh you know? yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Believe me. I've seen that happen too. Where and then they, and then they never even sign with us. Right. You know, they come in and eat everything and want everything and act uh, big time. And then they go to some other school and you're like, God, I didn't like that kid anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Why don't you go ahead and try to clear your throat there, uh, Paul. Um, I'm just just grabbing some water. Okay. Just a little raspy. Yep. Um, And that's, yeah, you're right. The last time that the University of Minnesota went to the College World Series. Now, I've traveled many a times with my, you know, in my times with Gopher Baseball to to, uh, regionals and whatnot, but we never got you know, over the hump. How was that experience to Omaha? Yeah, well, um, the, you know, the college baseball format's changed now. It used to be, there used to be eight regions across the country that would host four teams and you'd have eight people that would get to Omaha. Right. Now, now you don't only have to win uh, a, a four team region. If you're successful in that venture, then you're advanced to a, a, a series uh, two out of three against another team. So it brings more, more clubs into the pool as far as have an opportunity but it's a it's a tough road and and for the gophers in the northern programs um they almost invariably have to travel to some of these you know either yep. you know southern schools whether it's california or florida or oklahoma or texas and you're going into pretty difficult environments to try to be successful um the last time the gophers hosted a region it was just maybe three or four years ago and i was right. out there for 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 their games as they defeated, I think it was UCLA to uh, to advance to the super regionals, and eventually I think they lost the national champions out there in Oregon. But right. yeah, it, it's a tough it's a tough road to get to the College World Series. But uh, you know, for for us, you know, the year that we made it, we we did have a really really outstanding year. We were able to host a region and um, advance through that, which got us that trip to Omaha. Yeah, it's very difficult for northern schools to get past. The regional part, and then to, um, you know, they even get past the um, super regional. But yep. uh, we've been having a little success lately with like schools like Indiana and Michigan, whatnot, making that trek. The other thing right. people have to think about with Northern baseball, the, the the warm weather schools can continue to work out and practice outside all year long, where we're. You know, if you're lucky, you have some type of indoor facility um, that you can train in. And yeah, and, and the NCAA's tried to balance that out by limiting, you know, the amount of full team practices you can have and all those type of things. And, and I'm glad they did that. You know, we used right. to make our, our 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 first trip every year used to be to Texas, and we would travel down there and play teams like Texas Lutheran, the University of Texas, Texas A&M, Sam Houston. Mm-hmm. But we, when, when we would get down there and play in Austin against Texas, for example, I think the one year I went down there as a freshman, they were like 25 and three by the time we got there. <laughs> right. And, and we're coming out of the old field house. And so it, it was a little bit challenging, but, but certainly it was, uh, you know, playing against some of the teams like that was beneficial as far as seeing where, where you kind of were at that stage, both individually and collectively as a team. 
Oh, you just brought up memories of old emphysema hall, as we used to call it. The, the, <laughs> <laughs> the black dirt of the old field house, which has been refurbished now and just a fabulous looking place on campus. But um, yeah, it was just all black dirt in there. And when it was a student manager for football, would go in there for the third practice of the day. Yes, we had three a day practices in football back then. And um, you would just. Hall. Yeah, I I had forgotten that nickname, but uh, the old field house they they had a they had a baseball diamond. It was all dirt, right? And it was and it was surrounded by a net, and outside the net was a was a running track. You know? Yes. So, the, I mean, it, the the setup to think that what was what the university was trying to accomplish in having different sports <laughs> use the same facility yes. that was it 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 wasn't it, it wasn't very conducive to. Uh, a healthy environment. And, you know, we'd be in there from, you know, when school start back up in January mm-hmm. after the Christmas break, and we'd be in there for 10 weeks, day right. after day. And, and, you know, we we couldn't wait to get to Texas. I mean, right. was just, you know, get out there and, and see some real grass and get a chance to breathe some fresh air. It was uh, it was welcome relief, to say the least. And now with the, the facilities they have over there, maybe if they get a weather break, they can get outside earlier because, you know, they have the field turf field at right. the stadium and um but also uh, they share a uh, a more conducive indoor facility with uh with the softball program which is very you know very time uh helpful and you know also athletically helpful for the players so yeah they, they certainly can accomplish a lot more and get prepared to start a season with the facilities they have now which is good to see right. and you know we got we got that new stadium built i don't know seven eight nine i don't know how many years ago um, after Siebert Field had kind of outlived yes. its um, practicality, and so that's really been beneficial. The fact that they have the turf field, and, and uh, you know, they, with the weather we we have we're faced with in April, um, they still have a chance to get a lot of their games in. So that's a good thing. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the JB's Low Tech Podcast. As I stated earlier, today's guest is a podcaster, a dad, a comedian, a lover, and a lover of pancakes. And I truly want him to know that he is a headliner. Today's guest is Chad Daniels. <laughs> How you doing, Chad? Oh, I'm doing great. That was there was, was some deep cuts there. Right. Oh, that's great. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna because I had that in that line in the opening too. I'm gonna let the audience know. Chad is a national comedian and the best uh, comedy club in town here in Minneapolis, and one of the best in the country. Uh, Acme Comedy Club is owned and run by a gentleman by the name of Louis Lee, and he and Chad had an interchange that that at some point Lee um, or Louis uh, threw in the line, "Chad, you know headliner." <laughs> so. yeah. That's right. so it was the it was the first time he'd ever let me headline the club yeah and it was a it was a tuesday that's how he would do it he would try to see if you were ready by giving you a tuesday not a weekend okay and then i thought i had a good set and i was kind of excited for him to come back in the green room and then when he did that's when he came back and said you know you know headliner <laughs> and uh boy i was just heartbroken and then he came back in after that and was laughing and of course you know told me just kidding and all that stuff but man it was it was a pretty good burn <laughs> yeah i uh my two run-ins with lewis are both the same 
<laughs> basically, ba- basically the same way, ran into him in parking lots, introduced myself, and then reintroduced myself the second time. And he had this look of fear in his face both times. <laughs> hey, Louis, uh, JB, work on the Tom Bernard podcast. And he had this look of fear, and then he just went, he heard me say Tom Bernard podcast. He just kind of calmed down from there. Yeah, he probably, I mean, he gets hit up for work so often that he probably just thought you were a comedian <laughs> cornering him for a spot or something. <laughs> and in both times, he had a cigarette going. So oh, absolutely. I, I was yeah. screwing up his smoke break more, <laughs> <laughs> more than anything, probably. So what's up going on with you in uh, 2022? 2022, um, I just got back <laughs> on the road after a 16-month break oh. because of because of COVID and all right. that stuff. So started touring again, and um, I'm in Cincinnati this week, and then Omicron or Omicron, <laughs> I've heard it pronounced both ways, um, which isn't that just about perfect with mm-hmm. everything that's happening, is yeah. that now, now we can't even decide how to pronounce it, but... Um, so it's it's affecting the numbers a little bit. People aren't necessarily coming out. Right. Which is which is okay because I think with in this situation it really does have to be to each their own, you know, wh- whatever decision you want to make about this stuff is is your right. decision. So um yeah, it's just been interesting to to see um you know bef- every Monday I get the amount of tickets that have been sold sent to me. Yeah. And then um Every single show this week that I've done, it's been probably about half of that. And so I started asking, and they said, yeah, people are calling, you know, canceling reservations and, and stuff like that because they don't want to go out, which is, which is understandable. But then that makes me think, well, what's going to happen? Are we headed back to another, yeah. another break? Which I got to, I mean, I love the break. I, I found out during lockdown that I was built for retirement. <laughs> Were you? <laughs> Oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm pretty lazy, and I love being home just tinkering around like an old man. Well, um, I can't believe that uh, this virus almost uh, tore a country apart, but it almost did, believe it or not. No, oh, it's barely hanging on. Yeah. Right, and I, and I blame that on leadership, national leadership. But um, mm-hmm. I was lucky I had to... Had to continue. Well, I could have quit, but I had to continue to work through the whole shutdown. Uh, okay. We scaled back. Um, I'm working at the main uh, supply hub at the University of Minnesota campus. We scaled okay. back, and there were days we were working three, four hours a day and getting paid for eight. And it's like, huh, okay, you know, roll in. And it was, and it was very odd. Because we'd be in the middle of something, and the supervisor would go, "You gotta go," which meant if I was, um, <laughs> if I could have been like tightening the bolt on a, and I wouldn't be doing this, but if I was tightening the bolt on something to stop water from leaking in, I would have just had to leave. <laughs> no leak would have had to go. <laughs> Let it leak. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like you gotta go. Because they wanted at that time they wanted as few of us on campus as possible as as short as possible, so wow. I was like, oh well. So yeah, I was thinking myself just a day or two ago, are we headed backwards? 
because, yeah, and it's very strange. I mean, this variant is um, supposedly it was less dangerous but more contagious, and now it sounds right. like the danger part of it is starting to kick up again. Uh, yeah, it's just, it's a mess. What do you do? Right, because you're starting to hear now that more and more young people, as in young children, are starting to fill those beds in the hospitals. So I don't know. Me either. I mean, I, I have zero science background. Right. I, I try to listen to people that, you know, have letters after their name. Right. <laughs> in, instead of people that just saw a meme on Facebook. But um, who knows? I, I don't have any answers. <laughs> How do you, let me ask you this. How do you feel as a comedian Finding out that people are listening to a comedian about their advice on how to protect themselves from COVID. No, we're just, <laughs> Joe like, Rogan. Nobody got into comedy <laughs> because they thought, well, eventually there's going to be a pandemic and I'm going to help lead people through it. I mean, I was doing this bit, um, you know, Aaron, the free thinker, Aaron Rodgers. Right. Uh, I was doing this bit where I said, uh, Aaron Rodgers walks into a bar. And I, this is when I was in Appleton and Madison, Wisconsin. Uh-oh. And I go, Aaron Rodgers walks into a bar, and uh, the bartender says, hey, Aaron, why the long face? He says, oh, it's because I've been taking horse pills <laughs> on the advice of a comedian that used to ask people to eat bugs on a game mm-hmm. show. <laughs> so- I'm letting this run on way too long. I want to thank the last group of guests here. Pat Montague, of course, restaurateur, managing partner of J.D. Hoyt's down downtown Minneapolis, Michelle Tafoya, who used to be a sideline reporter in uh, the NFL, and she used to do the NBA, and now she's venturing out on her own doing uh, broadcasting. Paul Molitor, Baseball Hall of Famer, Gopher Baseball Hall of Famer, and the last voice you heard was Chad Daniels. We're going to take one more break here, and then I'm going to play something that a lot of you maybe never heard, and it's the first crack of the microphone of the JB's Low Tech Podcast. But first, let's hear again from my wonderful sponsor, Mike Bryant, and then we'll hear me crack the microphone for the first time on the JB's Low Tech Podcast. And that's the reason why it's called the Low Tech Podcast, when you hear the sound quality. And you probably can tell the difference as you've heard these different interviews of how the sound quality has gotten better. Hey, live and learn. But next here, Mike Bryant, here on the JB's Low Tech Podcast. When you need someone to listen, a lawyer you know and trust, Hi, I'm Mike Bryant. Over the years at holiday time, Bradshaw and Bryant has been able to help thousands of central Minnesotans arrive home safely from the bars. This year, we could very well be celebrating at home, but there's still lots of things that we can do to ensure that you stay safe on the roads, like slowing down, giving yourself enough time that you're not in a rush, no texting and driving, hands-free phone calls, and of course, no drinking and driving. Please be safe so that you get home to your loved ones. I'm Mike Bryant from Bradshaw and Bryant. This year, my biggest wish is that we all remain happy, healthy, and even a little more kind to one another. A lawyer who will fight with confidence and pride. A working harder, going farther. With Mike Bryant on your side. Seeking justice for the injured. Bradshaw and Bryant.
welcome to a new adventure for me. This is JB, and this is episode one of the JB Low Tech Podcast. I'm venturing out on my own, ladies and gentlemen. <coughs> First of all, I'd like to thank Tony Lee for the show intro. I thought I'd have something a little perky. The JB Low Tech Podcast is a one-man, one-mic. For now, no guests and no sponsor, no studio just me and my man cave. And again, I want to thank Tony Leaf for such a great intro. As a kid growing up in St. Louis, Missouri, my father, as my brothers called him, the creator of Surround Sound, placed speakers strategically through the house, one in the bathroom, one in the kitchen, one on our back porch to our home. We had a patio with a Uh, roof on it that he built himself and he put in a spot for two speakers and um, also he ran a wire to the neighbor's home uh, actually neighbor's garage so his if he was playing music the music would follow him wherever he went if he was listening to sports on the mighty 1120 KMOX in St. Louis that followed him too. The reason why I bring this up and tell that story, radio has always had an effect on me because I always got to listen as a kid. I was always intrigued by the rich voices that I heard as a kid growing up in St. Louis on KMOX. Just a few, Harry Carey and Jack Buck, when I was a really young kid on Cardinal Baseball. Also, Jack Buck and others did Big Red Cardinal football. Dan Kelly, who was a radio Hall of Famer and the best hockey broadcaster for his time, was the St. Louis Blues regular TV and radio broadcaster. And for a few years, we had an ABA team, and Bob Costas was our radio our radio play-by-play person. Again, that's state that this podcast will be mainly me alone just riffing on my thoughts of the day or the week and it could vary from sports to politics to race to hobbies might even talk about dating i have a lot of experience in that or whatever just catches my that was it that was the first time i cracked a microphone for the (laughs) modern miracle that it is called the JB's Low Tech Podcast, and now you know why it's called the Low Tech Podcast, because the sound quality wasn't the greatest, and I was stumbling along to get the words out. Well, it's uh, been a fun couple of years. I've gotten a lot better, I think. The guests have definitely made the show better, and it's odd, because when I listen back to that, I basically have talked about what I said I was going to talk about, sports and politics and relationships and everything in between. I want to thank you all for continued uh, listening. I really appreciate it. I want to thank my sponsors, Bradshaw and Bryant Law Firm, Mike Bryant, and also JB's Glove Repair, jbsgloverepair.com. And that business is taking off also. So here's to the first 100. And maybe if things go well, there'll be another 100. Again, thank you all and continue to listen.
to the JB's Low Tech Podcast. The Black Avenger. Godfrey Cambridge is Gravedigger Jones. Raymond St. Jock is Coffinhead Johnson. Look out for a brother, man. What you gonna play now? Is it going crazy? Master P. I sure am hungry. Baby, 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 was as big as Mohammed Allah. Black is beautiful. Right on. I'm black, y'all, and I'm black, y'all, and I'm blackity black, blacker than black, black. I'm blackity black, yo, because I'm black.